This is a collaboration between the Imperial Innovation and Entrepreneurship podcast and the Young Entrepreneur's Journey podcast. Welcome to season one of the Imperial Innovation and Entrepreneurship podcast hosted by Yasmina, Jayshan, and Sam. We're bringing to the table insights from game-changing entrepreneurs, business executives, and our very own community members. Thank you for coming along for the ride, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Young Entrepreneur's Journey podcast with your host, Yasmina Ellens. Now, you are here today to learn from the best in the world of business. And today, I have an absolute treat for you. I'm chatting with Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok, who is arguably one of the most successful entrepreneurs of the 20th century. Coming from very humble beginnings, he founded Reebok with his brother Jeff in 1958, eventually building it into the world's number one sports brand. And it is likely that you yourself own a pair of Reebok shoes or sportswear. Nowadays, Reebok is a globally renowned brand with several high-profile ambassadors such as Alicia Keys, Conor McGregor, and Ariana Grande, just to name a few. Joe has recently written and released his amazing new book, Shoemaker, which recounts the remarkable story of how he grew Reebok into one of the world's most famous sports brands, having started from a very small factory in Bolton, Lancashire. Now, by the end of this interview, you will have a deep understanding of how an extremely successful businessman thinks. You will gain insight into how to build a global business empire, and you will feel that you too could have the potential to make a big impact in the world. Thank you so much for coming on today, Joe. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Yasmina. That was uh, quite an introduction. I, I you're welcome. You're down in the interview. My pleasure. So my first question is, what originally got you onto your entrepreneurial journey? Well, I, I guess really it's because the, the family was involved in, uh, in running in athletics, the family business, the J.W. Foster and Sons. My grandfather started his business in 1895, and he made for himself a pair of spiked running shoes. And in those days, who would have heard of spiked running shoes? There may have been something about but we don't know. He's certainly credited with being a pioneer, if not the inventor of the spike running shoe. And he got his, uh, his skills from his, gran his grandfather. And his grandfather was a cobbler in Northamptonshire. And uh, he, he used to repair not only street shoes, but cricket boots, because cricket was going in those days. And uh, cricket boots had spikes in the bottom. So what we think that my grandfather said to his grandfather, why have they got spikes in the bottom of these cricket boots? And he said, well, it, grip. It gives them more grip. They don't slip when they're bowling, when they're batting, when they're fielding. So we think that that was his inspiration. But uh, apart from that, grandfather was, uh, he, he knew how to, uh, like I say, promote his shoes. He knew what to do. He knew if he had uh, winners running in his shoes, that everybody else would want his shoes. So he knew how to influence the business. And, and I think that, that really, by, by 1895, he was only 15, and he made his first pair of shoes. And I think he made a lot of shoes then for his club mates and local uh, teams, local athletics. But uh, in 1904, it was Alf Shrub, I think it was, who broke four world records. And then also during that first uh, decade of the uh, 20th century, he had many Olympic athletes, but his his uh, belly pop we'll say, was the 1920s. During the 20s, he supplied, and it's written down, we have paperwork here, that he supplied all the Olympic teams. And, and in Antwerp, that's where it started. He also supplied three athletes, um, Eric Liddell, Harold Abrams, and uh, Lord Burley. Now, those three athletes were actually immortalized in a film. You may have heard the film Chariots of Fire. You probably heard the music. But Chariots of Fire, I mean, he made those shoes, so those were all gold medals. Unfortunately, he died in 1933, and I wasn't born until 1935. But it so happens I was born on his birthday, the 18th of May. So I had to be called Joe Foster as well. Grandmother insisted. My mother was shocked. But 
grandmother insisted. And uh, my mother was a bit frightened of grandma. Uh, she was a bit of a firebrand, Mariah. Oh, yes. And, uh, of course, then the sons took over. That was my father and uncle. They took over the business. Uh, I didn't join the business until uh, 1952, 1952, when I was 17. And, but I only spent one year in the business. And that, I was a clicker. That means I used to cut the leather out, the, the shapes of the upper. Um, but one year later, I was called up for national service. Everybody had, well, if you were fit enough, you'd do national service. And Jeff and myself, we both went, because Jeff, Jeff had joined the company four years before me. It's two years older, but uh, by deferment, it so happened. We went to the, uh, we went to the forest to the same. Jeff went into Germany. And there he saw Adidas, saw Puma, which they were, they were coming into the UK in those early days. But really, that's where he saw the difference. And when we came back two years later and came back to a, a company, we had a different perspective. We'd been away. Mother wasn't making lunch and doing your washing and looking after you. You saw life and you had to look after yourself for two years. And that, that gave a different perspective. So when we came back and we're looking at the company and we said, uh, this is a failing company. It's dying. Mm. Try as we would to talk to my father and uncle about we need to change. It we couldn't make we couldn't make any headway mainly because they were they were feuding with each other. We're fighting with each other. Literally on occasions we had to pull them apart for fighting. So how does a company uh, sort of go anywhere if if the, if the people who are running and operating the company don't speak with each other? So we tried, but we uh, we looked around and we decided uh, college at night. We went night school, college, and uh, we learned a little bit more about uh, about making shoes because all we knew was how to make running shoes on the factory floor there at Foster's. But the main thing that uh, we gained was we, we gained friends. We 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 got to, we got to know more about people within the industry, so that. <clears throat> Eventually, when we did leave, there were people we could go to, ask questions of, can you help with this? Can you help us make patterns? Can, and that, that really helped us. But it was 1958. Jeff and myself, we'd had enough. My father wouldn't uh, split away and, and set up a company. So we went on our own. And in 1958, in the next little town, we set up our factory uh, in an old brewery. And uh, we called it Mercury Sports Footwear. And that, that was the start. And so when we say, what well, there must have been some DNA in there and whatever. And surprisingly enough, we didn't know really anything about grandfather. He died before, well, Jeff, I think, was just about six months old when he died. He died two years before, 18 months before I, I was born. And we somehow... Information didn't travel. We didn't get anything from uh, my father. Um, we just picked up the fact that, yes, he, he started his business. But it was only when we got into business ourselves. And in fact, it's only when we really had Reebok working well that we did a lot of research back. And we found out all things about grandfather. So I guess it was, uh, it was a bit of fate. We, we were part of a, an athletics company. And uh, in fact, grandfather has supplied every football team in the country. You can include wow. Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City, everybody. I think there was only Tottenham that, that I couldn't find on the list. And we do have a, an old letterhead from the 1920s, which is printed suppliers to all these teams. So he supplied all those teams. And even today, I don't know why... Fosters were not the biggest uh, sports company in the world. But in those days, sports footwear was for, was for perform, performance only. It mm. wasn't until, I think, the well, after the war and probably into the mid-50s that we saw Adidas doing replica T-shirts, replica uh, football shirts and things like that. That brought it onto the street. And... Uh, so we, we, we left, we had no money, or we had very little money, and we set off with a very small company. 
But uh, I think it was 18 months later when we were doing nicely. Thank you. Yes, you know, the, we were making some money. Um, our shoes were selling well. But our accountant said, uh, you, you know, you, you're doing okay, but you need to register that name. If you don't register Mercury and somebody starts making shoes uh, and they call them Mercury, you, you're going to have to go to court to fight them and say that you, you were using that first. So uh, we, we applied. We applied to the registrar and uh, it came back. Sorry, it's pre-registered. Oh. Mm. oh. So we were advised to go and see um, uh, a patient agent. So the patient agent would do the job to look into the register. And uh, the patent agent actually said, well, we can buy that if you want for £1,000. Well, I mean, £1,000 to people even today is quite a bit of money. But, it, I mean, it's like asking today for about 100000 something like that. We didn't have that sort of money. We, we were, yes, we were living, we were making a bit of money and we were enjoying uh, doing the business. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm with the patent agent and he points through the window and he said, uh, he pointed to Kodak. There's a sign up for Kodak. And I said, well, what's with Kodak? And he said, it's a made-up name. It doesn't mean anything. If we're going to register anything, you need a name like that. Mm-hmm. He said, but don't bring me one name. I need 10. Why 10? Well, he said, if we just put these in one at a time, it's going to be months and months and months before you find a name that you can work with. So let's get 10 names. So we're back. We're around the table. And I don't know if you've had any experience of sitting there and what shall we call this? And you know, it's a bit like calling a pet yeah. and everything like that. Yeah. <laughs> and you come out with some silly names and you've got to decide. So, I mean, for sport, we were thinking of birds like falcon and things like that, um, and animals, cheetah, you know, anything. So we had this list of 10 names. But uh, I also had a dictionary. Now, in 1943, when I was eight, during World War II, I won a race and I won this dictionary, a Webster's Dictionary. We didn't know what a Webster's Dictionary was in the UK. Probably a lot of people don't even know that now. But in America, that is the dictionary. And it's not everybody can make a Webster's Dictionary. It's not just one uh, person who makes it. So there's a lot of Webster's Dictionaries. So... I had this Webster's Dictionary, and here we are looking for names. And I thought, okay, I like that letter R. Nice, strong start to a name. So I'm in with my dictionary, flipping through, and I came across Reebok. Audibly, be okay. Small South African gazelle. Oh, gazelle. That mm. a sports company. Gazelle. Rang a bell. Really did. And uh, I put this at the top of the list. Went back to the patent agent and said, look, you've got your 10, but I want this one. This is Reebok. We like it. In fact, we're in love with it. And we need to be in love with it. It's got to be our passion. This has got to be our business. We can't just, so that's what I want. I said, okay. He put them all in, and the one name that came out was Reebok. The others all had a bit of problem with different uh, categories being registered. So... Reebok came out, but then the registrar came and said, well, yep, it's okay, we can register Reebok, but we can only register this in Part B of the register. And I'm saying, why Part B? And he said, well, if somebody comes to me and says, uh, we're making shoes out of Reebok skin, I can't stop you. Oh. However, 20 years later, he came back to say, we've moved you to Part A of the register, because now Reebok is not an animal. Reebok is a shoe. Wow. That is an incredible <laughs> the what a roller coaster ride. I have I have so many questions and it's really interesting. It seems like there are all these different strands of fate, like from you know, your your grandfather and the dictionary and all these kinds of things. Um I'm wondering, so when when you came back from national service and the business was was not doing well, it was failing. Um, how did you and your brother go from having this expertise in the craft of making shoes? Because clearly it was a very high quality product. 
how did you go from that understanding to actually the business of how the world of business works and how you can make this big in the business world? Yeah, well, I, I don't think we knew business in those days. I think it was a matter that we knew how to make shoes and we knew we knew we had, uh, well, we knew where to sell them to an extent. We, we had an idea because uh, Jeff was a, a very keen cyclist. So we, we advertised in Cycle Magazine for, with Cycle Shoes. And he, he is a very keen runner and he was part of the local athletic club. So word of mouth, it was very soon that athletes would come to our uh, small factory there. Um, so we had a nice business. And as far as we were concerned, when we were at Foster's, we had no control. We, we couldn't change things. We, we knew, I, I, I said to my father, you know, we've got to go and sell our product. We have to market our product. And even in those days, the word market our product was like, what's the difference between marketing your product and selling your product? The people mm -hmm. didn't distinguish that. But, you know, advertising, yes, they did some advertising in Athletics Weekly and in Cycling Magazine like we did. But that was it. They didn't have any representatives. They didn't go call on retailers. Uh, they, they just kept the business the same way that they had in grandfather's day. So this was a business still living in the 1930s and uh, probably even mm -hmm. in the 1920s, making that same product. Yes, demand had grown through just natural growth, but it was beginning to slow down. They, in, instead of having a, a sort of a 12-month trade, they just had trade uh, at the beginning of the year. That's when it really came in, the start of an athletics year. So when we left, we, we knew we could control our business. We could do something. We, we could change the product. And I think, I think mainly that's where we came from. We knew we had to sell it to the stores, to, to sports shops, and we had to send somebody out there to do that. But also, um, we knew we could change the product. Instead of it being the same product, which was now very dated, we could build a new product. We could compete with Adidas and uh, mm. Puma. Uh, we could do that. So I think that's what, what motivated us. Uh, learning mm. business was, <laughs> I started, I, I was the man going around with the, Jeff looked after the factory. He loved being in the factory. That was his, uh, his wish. <clears throat> so I had everything else. I did some design, I did the marketing. And I did the sales because I used to go out in the car and go around to retailers and say, I'm from Reebok and uh, this is, and the retailers, so many retailers would say to me, Reebok, who's that? Well, give an explanation. Then he'd point to his shelf and say, look, I've got Adidas, I've got Dunlop, why do I need Reebok? Mm. It's a question. And that really struck home. Why do I need Reebok? And it dawned on me he didn't need Reebok. He was supplying football people. He was supplying athletes. He didn't need Reebok. We made, had to make him need Reebok. And I thought, well, my, my customer is, uh, we used to go to athletics meetings and sell out of the back of the car and whatever. So we, we knew our athletes. Now, this, is my, this is my audience. These are the people who are going to buy my shoes. The retailer is only a, a means of uh, getting them to the local athletes. And uh, so, again, a great uh, stroke of luck. We were in athletics. The three A's had a handbook. That's the Amateur Athletic Association. They had a handbook. And in that handbook, anything between three and 400 names of clubs and the... Uh, name of the secretary of the club, and his address. Well, that was a no-brainer. That meant a lot of letters going out to every athletics club in the country with a, an offer, 15% uh, discount if they uh, bought from us, and uh, they could either give the club the money or the person who was doing the selling could keep it. And if somebody wanted to become an agent... That would be great because we would have a contact. I got a lot of contacts. I got a lot of agents <clears throat> and our business grew. Our business grew really well. And what happened then is the retail in stores in, in a lot of these towns where we were supplying direct would come on the phone and say, 
uh, look, you're supplying you know, these athletes direct, uh, you know, we'll stop your shoes if you stop supplying direct. And uh, I said, no, and we won't stop supplying direct, but we will sell to you at wholesale price. So you can have the local trade and you can make a profit. I, I think nine out of 10 of the retailers that came to me actually accepted that, that uh, we were driving the business. So that's our business. Mm. But we were still small. And uh, had to have a, the next step was America. Yeah. And in, in your book, you talk about how you knew that America was the key. And so I'm really curious to you know how you start, how you went from, okay, I'm doing well in the UK. Suddenly my shoes are selling like hotcakes. This is great. Um, but it's still small. So how did you go from that stage to expanding into international markets and then eventually being hailed as one of the fastest growing companies in America? Well, we're sort of British and we have a common, we have a commonwealth. And that commonwealth, uh, they used to take the magazines like Athletics Weekly. So we had a business in Australia, New Zealand, and a, a lot of the Canada, I had a distributor in Canada because they learned about uh, about Reebok through the Commonwealth and that was nice and easy but America didn't but America is the big one and why is it a big one well when I was looking at it they had universities and colleges and universities and colleges had coach coach was so important in America not so important in the UK but in America you could go to college well, just by being a good sportsman, they'll take you. And that was, that was brilliant. So, uh, I, Foster's has actually done some uh, business with uh, a guy called Bob Jean, uh, Frank Ryan and Bob Ginger. They were, they were coaches at Yale. They were chief coaches at Yale. So there was a, a business with Foster's, but I think it sold about 200 pairs a month. It was great. But, uh, so I knew what was going on in, in America. And uh, it so happened in uh, 1968, the British government decided they wanted to uh, uh, have the sports people export. They would like to help us export our, our product. And this was good because uh, they, they offered, really they offered this for USA in particular. Because in USA, uh, there was the... Um, NSGA, which is the National Sporting Goods Association, they had a show every year in Chicago. And uh, the, the government said that, look, we'll pay for your stand, we'll pay for your return airfare, and we'll pay for half of your expenses whilst you're there, your hotel bills. Well, it was almost cheaper than staying at home, that. Okay. So... Uh, I got together with a friend, Bob Brigham. Bob Brigham has the uh, Ellis Brigham stores. You may ever know of Ellis Brigham. They're uh, climbing skiing stores in, in the UK. He was only a small one-store amount in those days. But uh, we got together. And uh, we went. We took that first journey. In fact, we took <laughs> – it was funny. Whilst, whilst the government was paying our ticket, we decided to uh, – make it a little easier for them by having a return ticket. It was a BA one, but you had to stay for two weeks, <laughs> which mm. was cheaper than just going a ticket there and a ticket back. Don't know why we did it, but I suppose uh, an extra few days because the, the show itself was only four days, which would mean six days, a day in, four days, and a day out. But So extending it wasn't, too, wasn't a bad idea. Uh, but that first trip, and we went to New York first. And we decided that we'd go there and just have a look around, see the stores, see what the stores are doing. Bob, he went to look at the outdoor stores, and I, and I was looking at all the sports stores and seeing, seeing what they said. So we, we got a little bit of a feel for the market, went on to Chicago, set up our stand, and Bob actually sold a few of his uh, climbing boots. Well, that was good because we made his climbing boots, so that gave us some, but I couldn't sell anything. And the main reason was that they loved the product this is great. Yeah, where do I buy it from? And I said, well, you buy it from England. And he said, is that New England? Did you? Oh, no. No, England. It's across the water. <laughs> oh. Well, look, 
when, when, when you get somewhere we can buy them from here in, in the States, we'd love to try your product. Well, I must have had six or more attempts with different distributors, people who would like to do it, um, but it didn't work. For whatever reasons, either they didn't have the money, they didn't have the expertise. America's a big country. It's massive. You know, from one side to the other, it's so many different uh, uh, climate, time zones, uh, and, you know, the, the temperature changes, and some of the culture changes as well. Um, like down in, uh, down in California, they actually played football or soccer, as they would call it, but nowhere else in the States. They didn't play soccer. But uh, after all those failed attempts, in 1979, I did it. We got in there. I got a distributor. Mm. And uh, it was on that journey. During the 1970s, running became a massive, massive participation sport. Everybody started to run. Everybody was out on the road doing 5Ks or just training. And what was driving this business was a magazine called Runner's World. And Runner's World, we advertised in Runner's World. Yes, we got orders. Um, but it's the same story. People in America didn't particularly like to uh, order a pair of shoes from England. It was like, how do you do that? However, mm. uh, Runner's World really grew the business. So this was our luck. Good luck, because we were there at the right time. <clears throat> but we still, how do we get in the market? We needed... As they would say in America, the hook. We needed something. And Runners World started to rate shoes. They, they, were, they were so influential <clears throat> that they could tell you which were the best shoes. And they started to rate them one, two, three. And of course, if you became number one shoe, as far as they were concerned, a training shoe, you could never produce enough shoes. Nike did that and they, they imported their shoes. But it took six months to get organized for the demand. And in another few months, everybody's waiting, what's going to be the next shoe? So the retailers were absolutely mad with, uh, with Bob Anderson of uh, Runner's World. You can't do this to us. You know, we can't get the shoe immediately. And then when we do get the shoe, everybody's thinking of a change. And so they're stuck with shoes. So we changed this. I don't know whether he thought of it or he was persuaded. He changed it from one, two, three to a star rating. And the top of that was five stars. If you got five stars, and there could be four shoes got five stars, then it went down three, two, one, whatever. Obviously, the shoes which were in demand were five-star shoes. And I knew this. So I designed a shoe specifically to get five stars. I knew what to do. <clears throat> knew the type of shoe that uh, would be good. Knew Bob Anderson. We were advertising. We thought we've got all the persuasion we need to get a five-star shoe. We brought it out in 1978, and uh, we did really well with it in Edmonton at the uh, Commonwealth Games, and we got a lot of uh, we got a lot of gold medals. It was our gold range. We we brought an Aztec that was the trainer. We brought an Inca that was a spike track shoe, and we brought out Midas, uh, and Midas was a road racing shoe. So we did really well with that. So in 1979 in February, this again is in in Chicago. If ever you want to get cold, go to Chicago in February. It's <laughs> freezing. <laughs> it's absolutely freezing. Uh, it, it, it is uh, <clears throat> it's incredible. You, you run mm -hmm. from a vehicle to inside. It's, being outside at minus 20 is not fun. It really isn't. However, 1979 February, we have the shoe. And... We are hoping that this will be a five star. I get Kmart. There's a big uh, multiple store group in America. They wanted to buy 25,000 pairs, right? Our factory, that was about six months work for our factory in, in, in the UK. Wow. However, <laughs> we knew if we got a five star shoe and we got onto the American market, we would need help. And Barter, UK Barter, they promised that they could help us. That's fine. But they also wanted a better price. Uh, and Barter could beat the price I could make them at, but not by enough. So we knew we would have to go where the, the, where the business was going, where the shoes were going, and that was in the Far East, in particular 
in those days, South Korea. So we knew that. So I'd set up with people and arranged with meeting with people, people who could help there. So I said, yes, we, we can do that. It will take us a little bit of time to get going on it, but um, we, can, we can do it. However, I also met Paul Fireman. Paul Fireman was a, he, he ran a, a wholesale business in Boston called Boston Camping. So he was selling tents, all sorts of things, everything, fishing lines, you, you name it. But he wasn't really in my trade. Mine was a sports business, which meant sports stores. He was in the outdoor business, which meant outdoor stores. And they are different. But he knew America and he had salesmen. So, mm. but he was small. As I knew that with Kmart, if we went with Kmart and it didn't work, they would just pull the plug because <clears throat> they have square meters. Well, I suppose it's square yards in, in America and they've got to make so much money per square yard. And if it doesn't make that money, that product gets dumped. <clears throat> mm. Whereas with Paul Fireman, I thought, well, we can work it slow. We can grow it. We can start. So, but Paul said, look, Joe, I'd love to be your distributor, but we need a five star shoe. I said, Paul, just wait four months. I think it was June or August when the, this would be out. I said, we will have a five star. I'm sure those five, those uh, months passed. And it was a day, I don't know, sometime probably in July when they published that, uh, that magazine, which was the, uh, the shoe magazine. And I phoned Paul. I think it was about midday when I from, from from the UK, but it was obviously seven o'clock in the morning in Boston. And it was a bit sort of uh, just getting out of bed, I think. if you, I may have even gone out of bed and said, Paul, get down to the local kiosk and buy one of these run of the world. Let's see what we did with the five stars. <clears throat> An hour later, he came back and said, Joe, Aztec, you got the five stars. Well, that was it. We knew, we knew then we had an entry into, into the United States, their market. But he said, not only that, your Inca, your track spike and your racing shoe, they also got five stars. <clears throat> so we had three five-star shoes. We'd done it. Wow. We went out in America. That's amazing. You're, you're an amazing storyteller, by the way, Joe. I am just captivated by your, your whole journey. Um, that must have been such an incredible feeling uh, to be like, wow, you know, we, we made it. We've unlocked the key. And one, I, I, I want to say I have so many questions. But uh, one thing that I'm really curious about is obviously in business, there are a lot of strategic alliances. And there are a lot of strategic partnerships that you form, whether it's with the distributors or the retailers, uh, you know, these gatekeepers. I know eventually later on, Reebok had these ambassadorships with, uh, you know, famous athletes and then celebrities. So how did you go about building all of these relationships with all of these different kinds of key players? What's, what's your philosophy when it comes to that? Well, <clears throat> you, you can't do that on your own. That, that's impossible. It's what it is, is growing with people and finding people. You know, it's no use. If you're the smartest man in the room, you're in the wrong room. You've got to get smart people. You've got to get people who can actually help and grow. Because Reebok, we, we got in uh, with running. Running was massive. Paul Feynman was doing a really great job. But he had, he had a tech rep called Arnold Martinez. This tech rep was in Los Angeles, and his wife, Frankie, she was going to these aerobic classes <clears throat> with her girlfriends, coming back, and they would just follow it. And Arlo is very inquisitive and says, look, 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 Frankie, what, what's, what's all this about? They said, well, we're, we're actually uh, exercising to music. And, you know, it wasn't dreary music, there's whatever, you know, with a beat, really exercising to music. He said, I'm going to come down and have a look. Oh, I said, okay, come next time. He went down there. And what did he see? He saw an instructor wearing a pair of running shoes. And he saw half the class also wearing running shoes. And the other half of the class, no shoes at all. He had his light bulb moment at that point. 
well, why don't we make a specific shoe just for aerobics? And we'll make it out of glove leather. And it'll be soft and nice and cushioned. Mm -hmm. So he went up to Paul Fireman. And he said, Paul, look, this is what's happening. And Paul said, look, I know. Yeah, we're doing so well with running. It's brilliant. We're, we're doing fantastic. Why do you want to play around making a few shoes for some girls jigging about down there in Los Angeles? Oh. But Arnold wasn't put off. He went around to the back door and had a word with the production people. And he persuaded them because he was very persuasive. He was a really good guy. He, he was a salesman, of course. Very, very good salesman. And... Uh, he said, just make me 200 pairs of shoes. And he said what he wanted, nice, soft, glove up her. And they did. He took them back down to Los Angeles and gave them to the instructors and a few of his, uh, his, his best friends who were out there, or his wife's best friends. And that was it. The women, that was, it changed the nature of the company. And what, what, what happened? Well, all of a sudden, the girls had this shoe. It was very soft. It was just made for the girls. It wasn't made for men. And Reebok, Reebok was known in the running communities. They just started to get them, but not known throughout America, like uh, Nike and Adidas. They were male. They were sweaty. Oh, no, this was a beautiful woman's shoe. This wasn't male and sweaty. This, all of a sudden, Reebok became a woman's shoe, a woman's company. And it just exploded. Adidas and, uh, and Nike, they just stepped back. Nah, it's just a phase, just a craze. But you know that craze? It went, took the company from $9 million to $30 million to $90 million to $300 million to $900 million in successive years. It were crazy years, those. Absolutely crazy years. And, and that's when it, that's what really exploded. And so, it exploded with women. That was an absolute winner. It just and of course, being down in Hollywood, all of a sudden we had Jane Fonda doing her uh, videos in Reebok. If we didn't have to pay her, she'd actually bought her first pair of uh, Reeboks. She didn't buy any more, I don't think, because we we looked after that. But then you got Sigourney Weaver uh, uh, in Aliens. And, and we had Sybil Shepherd. Sybil Shepherd, of course, she picked up her Emmy Award in her high tops, uh, her orange high tops. And these were so, so the whole thing became so visible. And it's that visibility you need to succeed. You need to have that visibility. You need to have those endorsements. Uh, those people who can influence. And that was a big, big influence that blew the company up. Now, when, when you do that, you need a lot of people. And so people are, and my, my feeling had always been that America, that is the market. That's the market that will accept. Because those first uh, aerobic shoes, they were made of glove leather. And when, when they told me, I said, you can't do that. You can't make it out of it. They'll just fall apart. And they did. Mm. They did for three months. Uh, shoes were falling apart. But we were talking about America. And we were talking about women. That didn't bother them. They just went out and bought a new pair. Had that been in, in, in England at that time and in the UK, no, we would have died. We would just... But in America, <clears throat> that was the spirit. And, okay, we soon cured the problem. We got different leathers. We got soft leathers, but more, uh, more capable of uh, making a shoe out of it. And... Uh, and really, that changed the whole, uh, the whole footwear, sports footwear business. Everybody knew they had to have comfortable shoes because people were so used to buying a, a pair of tennis shoes. And by the time you'd worn them in, they were nearly worn out. Uh, they, were, uh, they were made of leather, which would stand up because one of them, I don't say it's a problem, but when making the shoe out of that soft leather, it didn't stand up, it didn't keep its shape. The, the toes were sort of crinkly, but that, that became an attraction. And no soft shoes became... So Reebok changed the business. But that's not me. It's taking the right people. It's getting the right people together. And then, of course, our whole marketing process starts off in America. Um, 
what we're talking about now, we're talking about basketball, we're talking about American football. And these are where the, the influences and the stars are. So it really grows. So by late 1980s, we had become the number one sports brand globally. We were, we'd overtaken Nike, we'd overtaken others, uh, but we'd got that big. And by the end of 1989, I said, look, time for me to go. Because the challenge for me had gone, now we have accountants, we have lawyers, we, we have people who are used to volumes and you know, the production. It's, uh, so you, you, I'm no longer hands-on. Okay. I'd spent a lot of time building global uh, distribution. I left everything to Paul in America. He was an American. He knew his market. For me to be involved in that market, no. I'll get the rest of the globe. And I built the global network. I put on, I think, I think we counted them the other day. I think it was about 40 different countries that uh, I had to wow. travel. But I was, going, I was going around the world three times a year. I was doing going around the world. Until I ended up just going around the world, being picked up by a limousine, being driven to uh, the best Italian town, dining at the best restaurants and just talking. And whilst that's very nice, maybe once a year to do, to be doing that as for the business, I decided it was time to go. So at the end of 1989, the, the business had got to 3.8 billion, I think it was, the biggest at that time, and I retired. I decided to get out. But when I say I retired, um, it's a bit like Hotel California by the Eagles. You can check out, but you can never leave. Yeah. And for me, it was always the same. They were always on the phone, always saying, Joe, we need what happened here and what happened here. And there are lots of things which are not in the book. Beyond the book, in fact, maybe book two eventually. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> so I checked out. Hmm. So, so it's really an incredible feat that you achieved because you found the right market, you found the gap, you understood the target customer. And um, it's really interesting to see how it exploded that way. Hmm. What, what I'm really curious to know from you is either back then when it started really getting really big or even just now, like how, how does it feel like when you see your shoes all around the world and you know that it just started in this small factory? Like, do you, do you ever get a sense of, you just like see some random stranger walking down the streets wearing Reebok shoes? How does that feel? Do you get the sense of like, wow, I built this? I, I, I think I get more the sense of wow now. <clears throat> than I did at the time. I think because at the time, you're just taking those steps. You're just moving, you're moving, you're moving. You're continuing to move, and, it, and it's incredible. I mean, yes, you, you know, you, you needed to pinch yourself sometimes because we, we, we spent so much time on uh, so many um, promotions, in particular the one that was in Monte Carlo, the, um, the, pro, uh, the pro celebs. That was a tennis event, and we had... You, you could almost find it difficult to name somebody who wouldn't turn up there. Frank Sinatra, um, Roger Moore, Sean Connery, you know, all these stars. Um, and my, my good friend, John Fergus, John, uh, John Forsyth, John Forsyth, uh, it was Dynasty and whatever. He was a real good friend. And we used to have these dinners. I know it was only the second time that we had this dinner and John Forsyth came up to me and said, hi, Joe, how are you doing? <laughs> He said, John, how do you remember my name? And he said, Joe, that's my job. But uh, you, you meet all these people, uh, Jane Seymour, you, they're all there. And uh, it was great. I had two or three years just doing this. Um, it was all, I mean, we supplied royalty. We supplied Princess uh, Diana and Sarah Ferguson. Um, Sarah Ferguson became quite friendly. Uh, we, we had uh, lots of uh, events in the UK. So, yeah, you, you think, <clears throat> wow. But, you know, could you sustain that? How, how do you want to do 
be be moving in that circle all the time. So I think for me it was you know great, great fun, uh, wonderful time. But time to get out of it. And yeah, I can look back on that. <clears throat> but a lot of the time when I was traveling in those sort of ten years of building, getting into America, and I did a lot of travel. Yeah, um, I met a lot of people, but I'm on my own. And one thing that uh, you think, wow, you, you go back, uh, you arrive back at the, the office world and people say, hi, Joe, how's things? Yeah, he's like, oh, hi, yeah, fine, fine. Uh, but it would have been so much nicer to have uh, you know, shared those experiences. And uh, I, you've heard of Ginger Rogers, maybe? Uh, yeah. Fred Astaire. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, famous, famous, famous. And actually to be invited to go into by the new owner who was, um, what was he called? Fred Paris' son. Uh, he now owned the house and to go in that house and uh, to, to see it, there were two floors. One was a sort of a lounge living, the other one was what uh, called the, uh, the games room where she had a soda bar and she had a, a camera to show all the films and a big mural painted across the view you could see of uh, Los Angeles. And it, and it was titled Painting the Town Red. So then, then to go up out of the house into a studio, which was a dance studio, and, and just step on that famous floor. <clears throat> Those are the sort of things that you, you remember. And they're the memories that make you think, wow. And you know, even now I can say, did I do that? We didn't have, tele we didn't have these computers. We didn't have a mobile phone. Yeah, whatever I did, I I had to say yes or no there, and worry about it later. I couldn't refer to anybody. I can speak to you now. There in London, I'm in France. And the other day, I was speaking to somebody in San Diego, and we've been speaking to people in Melbourne. You know, it's like we can do this now. We couldn't do that now. You couldn't share it. So it's incredible how things have moved on. And today, where, whatever you're doing, it has to be technology. You know, yeah. making a pair of shoes, well, you have to consider the technology. And now it's marketing, influencers. So, so it's fantastic. But, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was good to get away from it and, and be able to look back on it. And, of course, the problem was that over that period of time, so many people had their idea of how Reebok began. Many people think that all we did, we just took over the J.D. Foster company and changed its name. We didn't. Mm -hmm. And if you've read the book, which I think you seem to have read the book, uh, yeah. we didn't do that. It was a struggle. There was a lot of anxiety, a lot of upset going from where we are to starting to originate in uh, the Reebok brand. But, of course, mm -hmm. the DNA must be there. The DNA that must be there. And, and you know, as I said, Previously, we didn't know much of grandfather, and we we learned that we we dug everything out. We now have a whole history of what he did, and we think, mm. wow, fantastic! Wish I was as good as him. <laughs> Were there any really powerful lessons that you learnt from your grandfather post mortem when you started to learn about all of the things that he'd achieved? Uh, well, already we, we'd, uh, we'd made the difference. We, we'd become big by the time we really learned about grandfather and uh, just mm. where he came from. Um, and, and I think a lot of people did learn lessons from him. I'm pretty sure that uh, <coughs> Adi Dassler himself, Dassler himself must have bought a pair of my grandfather Joe's shoes. I'm pretty sure. Back in the 1920s when he was a young lad, he, he must have got his ideas. Um, and, and now you think, you know, he knew so much about influencing. That was brilliant. In those days, that, that was top marketing. And, mm. you know, what I'm very sad about is why his sons just didn't seem to have that. They just continued rolling the ball, but it was going nowhere. Mm. Um, so it was, it was that generation that uh, I wonder, wonder why, because, you know, Foster's should have had the, the best and the biggest business in, in sports business ever. Um, in fact, um, 
you, you need to see one of those uh, replicas. We've got a replica letterhead. And uh, let's have your, uh, your address and we'll post you a, one of those off and then you can look at it to see what he did. It's uh, magnificent. So I, I guess that uh, looking back, you, you can see that he was brilliant and that we were very fortunate that he had left us a legacy, which was how to make that those shoes in the first place and how to grow from that. So so we grew from that. But, uh, yeah, what lessons did I learn? Uh, I learned the fact that you don't give up. Yeah. You you just keep going. The, and I think if, if you can do that, you know, plus, let's call it luck. You need a lot of luck. It was lucky that we had a guy called Alan Martin is down in uh, in Los Angeles. It, it was lucky that the uh, the running boom came when we were just ready, because a lot of people tried to make running shoes, but they weren't credited with being running shoes. Clarks, Clarks made a, uh, a range of sports shoes. People say, no, no, you make kids' shoes, you make street shoes. Yeah, these are the people who make sports shoes. So you have to be the right place at the right time. That is luck. Okay, you make your own luck in many ways. But, you know, if you don't get that luck at the right time. So you need a lot of luck and you, you need to recognize luck. When something's coming past, it can pass you and you, you've lost it. So you need to, you need to know. You need to know your business as well. You need to know. Because when I went into these sports stores, although they said, I, you know, why do I need Reebok? I knew my product. If they asked me a question, I could tell them anything about my product. And I could usually tell them anything about anybody else's shoes as well because I was in that business. So mm. yeah, I think the lesson you learn is know what your business is and also uh, either be stupid enough or strong enough to just keep going. And, and, and I think you have to, because as I say, it took 11 years from starting in America to actually get into America. And I had to do those trips again and again and again. And in Chicago, that's cold. However, we did, we did every fourth year go to Houston. Now, Houston, that was different. I was warm. That was nice. Hmm. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah. uh, I've traveled America a lot. So you, you were relentless and it paid off. And it, I mean, it, it, it's because it's so easy for people to look back at something that's really big and, you know, it's like everywhere. And you think, well, oh, yeah, it's big brand, you know, easy. But nobody sees the behind the scenes work and the struggle and the failure and the rejection. And it takes someone with a really strong vision or very, um, you know, very calloused mind to keep bouncing back from that and go through the struggle to actually make it. To, to where it is, which is incredible. So um, I am conscious of time, but before I ask you my final question, uh, one thing I'm curious about is, uh, you know, you had all these people and you, as you were saying, you need smart people to move your business forward. Um, what are some lessons that you learned when it comes to being a good leader or being a good manager or actually finding the right people who are going to take your product to that next level? Well, I think it's very important to listen. You've got to listen. And uh, you know, when and when you see people, it is to find out what they think. You know, they have points of view. If it's just you and <coughs> you want to create what, whatever your dream is, you know, if it's stuck solid, you will fail. I think what you have to be able to do is be flexible. Listen to people. You know, Find out what people want. You know, take their ideas and, and bring them together and make it happen. Because to build to build a team, you, you know, you, you want people who are on your team. It's the same thing. If if you find there's people who really have their own agenda, then you have to suggest that they're the wrong people for this team. They need you need the same agenda. You need to be looking at things, different ideas, but you need to be doing that together. And you need to employ people who can do that job better than you can. Because if you can do it, why employ somebody? You need that extra brain set. You need that extra thinking. That, where are we going? And 
somebody like Arho, who, who can see something down in LA, you know, that's great that he's keen enough to bring it to the company and, uh, and see it through. And, and I think that uh, it, it is remarkable. But when you get to a certain size, you need other people. You, you need people who are able to work the regime, as it were, the lawyers. And uh, I, I thought that once you came in a successful business, you wouldn't need a lawyer. You'd be successful. <laughs> How silly that was. How <laughs> 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 okay. yeah. you, you begin to need lawyers and accountants more and more and more. Because always somebody trying to attack your business in whatever way it is, either it's copying you or, or whatever. So uh, I, I think uh, to, to really develop a business, you need to grow a team. Mm. And that team needs to be together. Really powerful. Very true. Uh, it's, uh, you know, no, I don't think anyone ever really achieved fantastically huge things on their own. You always need a team of winners around you. 100%. Yes. So my final question for you, Joe, is what are three key truths about the entrepreneurial journey that you would share with the young entrepreneur today? Well, I've always maintained that in business there are only three things to, to think about. First is fun. The second is fun. <laughs> the third is fun. Incredible. Yeah, I think it's so easy to get stuck and think like, I have to do this and I need to do this and people can forget to enjoy the journey. But I think for, for many people, you know, why would you become an entrepreneur? Or why would you go into business in the first place? It's to make an impact and it's to have fun. It's to enjoy that process of building something, right? Really powerful. Well, I, I, think that, uh, I, I think that if you're not having fun, it's hard work. You yep. must have. It must be fun. doesn't mean to say that every day you're going to be laughing and you're going to enjoy it. No, some days are going to be difficult. But if you get up in the morning thinking life is going to be difficult, no. You get up in the morning to have fun. And uh, if you're having fun, the people around you will have fun. And if you're, if you're really doing that, you, you will. You will grow. Because you grow because it puts inside you, it puts that right feeling inside you that you can progress. Yeah, if you're not feeling and having fun, you can get, you only need to look at Instagram and all these different things now on your telephone, and you can get as many quotes and as many smart uh, three, four word quotes of how you should be doing this, you should be doing that, that you want. Advice, advice is abundant. If you want to look at it, you look at these uh, uh, these different sites, and the, so all that's fine. But believe in yourself, have fun, and be willing to work hard. Just keep incredible, going. definitely, really, really powerful words. Um, I've really enjoyed this interview. Thank you so much, Joe. Do you like now is your opportunity to plug whatever you'd like to plug? So I'm guessing the book is on the table. Well, like I said, with, with the book. So many different stories had, had arisen, and I thought, and people said, why don't you write a book? But I sort of laid back for a while. But when, when you pick up uh, Wikipedia and you, you see you see a photograph of yourself, which is not you, uh, this is Joe Foster. Who? And so where did this come from? I have no idea. So I thought, well, the best way probably to do this is to write Shoemaker or write a book. And that book became Shoemaker. Um, and, and it just chronicles the story and what we did, how we did it, and who we were, as against all these different variations and thoughts. So I, right now, it's selling the book. We've got to get to, to number one, and uh, we're employing uh, different various means to make sure we become number one right now. In fact, today it's launched in America. Uh, the hardback is launched in the USA. And you can get the book, well, these days with lockdown, whatever it is, it, it has to be, of course, uh, over the internet and you can buy that from your, uh, from Amazon or any, anybody who, uh, who has a website that you can, you can go through. Uh, Waterstones, you know, the Waterstones and whatever. So you can buy it, buy it there. 
we we had been working on the fact that because we can't go anywhere, uh, you, you were able to buy from us the assigned copy. But right now, <clears throat> we're not doing that for a few months. We might come back to doing signed copies when we get back and go back to the UK to do it. Um, but for, mm-hmm. for now, with everything being locked down, you can't buy it direct from us. But uh, any, any bookshop, Amazon, whatever, online. Perfect. I'll put all of that in the show notes. Let's <coughs> let's help Joe's book get to number one. This is something you can do as the listener or the viewer. It's really a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. Um, so yeah, this this interview has just been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time, Joe. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Marina. It's been great. I love it. And uh, good luck. Good Thank you. Your business.